So this is a big podcast, this one. This is Alan Johnston. This is the sports performance consultant, psychiatrist, guru. He has many different roles, does Alan. His roles are consultant, performance, psychiatrist to the League of Managers Association. That is basically looking after the well-being of Premier League football managers. He is a sports psychiatrist to the English Institute of Sport and the first of his kind, um, Dr. Alan Johnston, is Team GB's sports psychiatrist as well, uh, ongoing and coming up to the, the Olympics too. So pretty mega. He knows his stuff. He's, he's a really good guy to know and I'm so glad we've got him on the Mentality Podcast. It's fair to say he's a bit of a big dog in the area of mental health. And we sat down and we had a really, really good chat. I remember coming back straight after recording the podcast with Alan being buzzing because I know that there's so much stuff in here that people can actually use and people can actually sit down with and go through and relate to their own lives. It's really valuable. Some of the stuff we talk about is young people's mental health. So what's the millennial mind like? Is it more open? Is it more tolerant? Is it more kind, compassionate? We talk a bit about that. We talk about social media. We talk about the pressure of short-term planning and threat-based systems that goes on in sport a lot. We talk about that in specific and we talk about strategies for injured players, but also some techniques for people to use, people listening, uh, what they can use in their own life and in specific accept and control the controllables, which is an invention of Alan Johnston. Before we kick off with it though, before we get into the, the juicy bits with Alan, I want to talk about response mortgages. They support mentality massively and they have sponsored the last five podcasts. This is the sixth podcast that they've actually sponsored. So I really want to give a massive shout out to them. What they can do is they can help you buy the home you've been dreaming about and they can make sure you're the right cover for you and your family. How they do it though is the bigger thing for me. They provide you with honest and ethical advice, offer a totally independent service. So they actually really go to get you the best deal. They search the whole of the market and they provide a full review of your mortgage protection and insurance situation. They support us, they support our mission. So wanted to get the word out there for them. Uh, so that's a big shout out for responsemortgages.co.uk if you are looking to remortgage or buy a new house. This is going to be a good one, this. I want to hear everyone's feedback, actually. I'd love to hear people's feedback. If you think it'll be value to people, message them it. Um, anyone specific that you think, do do reach out and, and give them a shout if you think it might help them. I also must mention the bit of the mess up at the end. The recorder got all of the, the podcast, but it didn't get us saying our really, really heartfelt goodbyes at the end. So I apologise for the abrupt ending. I think maybe Dom's going to put some chilled out music to to end it. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Here's Alan Johnston. So Alan, could you give me a background, mate, into your life and also, mate, the difference of a psych- being a psychiatrist as opposed to being a psychologist too. Yeah, of course. So I'm uh, so I'm a psychiatrist, yeah. uh, which means I'm a doctor of mental health. Uh, so in a nutshell, that means uh, my training was first as a doctor at medical school and then across different uh, specialties, surgery and medicine, and then eventually specializing in mental health. And right. as you know, for the last few years, I've been working uh, specifically in sports psychiatry. So in the mental health of athletes, thinking about the well-being and the performance of athletes across a range of different sports. Yeah, so you've had kind of 
the training to be a doctor mm. in the initial stages. And then I guess you got the, the passion of mental health, but also into sport around the same time. And then you kind of aligned that into to your current job. Yeah, I'd say they kind of weave together. So I've always loved sport. Uh, used to love which which sport mostly all sports really but um so so my auntie Marjorie who's my grandma's sister back in uh, Dewsbury would uh, would sit in her front room chain smoking all over me and we'd watch all <laughs> sorts of sports yeah so anything that was on Masters Wimbledon Silk Cut Challenge Cup um we'd sit and watch all sports so I've always loved sports and particular rugby yeah played a bit of rugby very badly and uh, enjoyed watching it um. And then I left Dewsbury and went to medical school down in London. And uh, no one in my family had done that before. Mm -hmm. um, but it was something I was really enjoying. And I remember first getting involved in mental health. So I worked at St. Clement's Hospital in East London, uh, which is where the Bells of St. Clement's comes from, Oranges right. and Lemons, the Bells yeah. of St. Clement's. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and just found it fascinating. So just thinking about why people do what they do, what makes them tick, what influences people, um, how do we treat mental illness, but more than that, how do we promote mental health? So how do we go beyond just not being ill to being more mentally healthy, more resilient, more robust, better mm. connections? And that just fascinated me from the beginning. And I had no idea I wanted to do psychiatry, but as soon as I did a placement in it, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that was on a specific ward in that down there in St. Yeah. Clements, yeah. So St. Clements is my land in East London. Right. And this is now, this would be 1999. And uh, I was put in a placement uh, there by chance, really, and just found it fascinating. So working on different wards, also in A&E, seeing people with mental health problems who come into A&E, mm. working in the community, particularly doing home visits. I always enjoyed doing home visits. Right. Just you're on that person's turf and you're in their environment and you learn much more about people, obviously, in their own homes. And when they welcome you into their homes, that's a real privilege and... Uh, and it's really special. So that's so mental health and psychiatry has really gripped me at that yeah. stage. Yeah. Could you, could you give, um, you mentioned there the difference between mental health and mental illness and um, the different things on that spectrum, I guess. But could you give us a roundup of um, your different roles, you know, as a psychiatrist, you know, um, working in sports psychology, um, just for the listeners to, to, to understand that what of you've course. done? Yeah. So then I suppose the journey then takes a bit of a step change. I'm working in the NHS up until 2012. I'm still working in the NHS now, mm -hmm. uh, but gradually been moving more into sports for the last seven years. Um, my first job was with the Bradford Bulls. So I was the first psychiatrist to work in a rugby league team yeah. with Francis Cummings and, and all the staff there. And as you know, that was a difficult time at Bradford. Mm -hmm. I was I got involved just after the first administration and before the next two. So that was wow. an interesting time to yeah, work yeah, in the yeah. club. Was that like a day-to-day Basis, yeah, so yeah. I was there every Friday right. and every match day. Um, and with I should give a big shout out to Francis Cummings and the work that he did uh, alongside myself and developing this model mm. and how it's going to work. It's something that hadn't been done before. Right. So, yeah, we worked out sort of the main principles around what we're doing, confidentiality. Uh, we wanted to normalize mental health problems, talk mm. about it in a normal sort of way. We wanted to integrate it. So it was integrated into the training schedule. So it was breakfast, gym, preview mental health indoor skills wow. outdoor skills yeah. home and it was just seamlessly kind of integrated into yeah. what you see as a normal day at work yeah um we wanted it to be proactive so it wasn't just me waiting to hear about problems but it was me 
sitting on the physio's bench, chatting to people or going to Nando's or going to Costa and sort of proactively, I guess, looking for things that I can do to promote health like we just talked about. And then gradually, you asked about the role, so gradually be moving more and more into sports. So at the moment, I'm a sports psychiatrist. I have a clinic here in Leeds. Um, I'm based in other clinics around the north of England, Sheffield and Manchester at times. Uh, but I work across all the Olympic sports. So I'm, I'm a sports psychiatrist to the Team GB on something called the Mental Health Expert Panel. So I work across the 38, 39 different Olympic sports, uh, which is great. So yeah. one minute I'm seeing a, canoeist in Nottingham and then a cyclist in Manchester and then a boxer in Sheffield. Yeah. And then I might see a ballet dancer in the clinic here in Leeds from the Northern ballet and then a prop forward. And it's really, so it's really <laughs> yeah. varied. Yeah. And then just this year I took on a new role in football. So I'm working with the league managers association, um, which is working across the premier league and English football leagues, helping the mental health of managers and coaches. Mm. I'm still involved in the NHS and a uh, state of mind is probably the thing worth mentioning. I'm a trustee yeah, yeah, of that yeah. charity, which as you know, is a mental health charity looking after uh, the well-being of rugby league players and their communities. Yeah. So I've got a few different hats, but it keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> That's brilliant. That is advanced. <laughs> that is advanced sports psychologist, well, psychiatry, I, I should say. Don't know about that. Psychiatry. Um, so along, along, for a long time, uh, um, for mentality, it's always kind of hard to, I think it's always changing um, mentality and, and, and the kind of purpose is always the same. It's to help guys and, and, and like I say, to help with promoting mental health just as a normal thing, normalising that culture around it. And mm. um, so to, to come up with a brilliant tagline is, is hard, but what we've originated with was um, for the millennial mind. Um, Cause I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on, on, on mental health, but I do, do try and throw things in there that, that can help people at the same generation of, of, as what I am. And I wanted to ask really just on, on, on the millennial mind, on, on the millennial mental health, what, and I asked this to Brian Mack um, mm. about the differences in generation. You know, he's such an old school guy. You know, what's the difference between players coming up nowadays compared to what, what he was coming up as, you know, in the, in the 80s. Um, so as a, as, a, as a broader question to you, Alan, for mental health nowadays, what do you see that as? And, and for the millennial generation, what, what do you see as as different? And, and, and you, you can expand on that as much as yeah. you want. Yeah, wow, that's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one, uh, yeah. So I guess, yeah, I guess uh, I'd probably start by saying, I think things are always changing. So mm. people are always changing. Uh, whilst we look at generations in terms of generation X and Y and millennials. Yeah. So I think, I think I don't make the millennial generation. I'm a bit too old. No, There's a cutoff possibly. around 1980 yeah. and I squeeze in just before that. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not categorical probably, is it? If you're born in 1979 or born in 1980, you're probably not dramatically different, mm. but we consider those generations in categories. The truth is probably that change has always happened and people are always changing. Uh-huh. So I would say, um, I would say that that would mean in sports that you need to increasingly and gradually uh, evolve to take a different approach to uh, younger people. And as young people feed into a club or a team or a business, uh, uh, man management or woman management, managing people would take on a different, Mm. you'd need to evolve and take on different skills and new skills. Mm. And I'm sure whether you're Brian Mack, whether you run a bank or a charity as you take on a new member of staff, they'll bring their own individual needs, but also over time, people's needs will change. And 
I might see that in some of the sports I work in. Yeah. So working across, say, football, I would say that younger players will have different expectations. A player who's 18, 19 would have different expectations to a player who's 39 and about to retire there, yeah. particularly around communication, um, use of uh, social media, um, issues around maybe openness. Mm. I'm a bit of an optimist. I would say in general, the world is getting better. Life is getting better. Yeah. The way that we're more open about issues around equality or gender, diversity, and in particular, in my field, I guess, mental health stigma, mm. I would say that's changing and that's yeah. improving. Yeah. Um, and we all need to try and keep up with that. We all need to try and evolve. Um, and that's the challenge, I guess, for all of us, whether you're a rugby league coach or, or whoever else you are. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm going to try and put a bit of uh, psychology and um, knowledge onto you now. Mm. You'll know all about the reticular activating system. Definitely. But that's something that it's... Uh, I'm trying to think of it like a, a nightclub bouncer for your brain where it lets information in and, and kind of shuts off other information. Right. Um, so I'm wondering whether me, the fact that I've, you know, that, that I put Mantelli out there, you know, just below three years ago, whether I'm seeing all, all the mental health stuff just because I've put it out there or whether it's actually a fact, factual thing that more people are talking about it and mm. more people are actually addressing it and speaking about it. I do think that is the case. I mm. think it is more banded around and um, people are more open um, to talk about it, to access support. Um, do you see that? That you see that people are more open to it? And, and, and in fact, um, we, we, we saw a stat earlier about 15% rise in, in child line, um, people talking uh, talking and ringing child line. Right. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you see that? Is, is that something that, that you can... Yeah, I do see that. Um, so mental health stigma campaigns have been around for years and years and years. When I was starting to train in the nineties, uh, there was something called the time to change. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, there were mental health charities like mind and others were looking to change mental health stigma. And I think about it a bit like an oil tanker. It takes a long time to change direction. It's got mm -hmm. a lot of momentum. Sometimes prejudices or stigmas can have a lot of power in their community. It can take a long time to change. I've noticed over the last five years, I would say, and increasingly, so increase, there's an accelerating change whereby mental health and stigma about mental health and an interest in mental health is changing. Right. And that's such a positive thing from, from, where, I, from where I'm sitting. Yeah. Um, the stat you talked about was an NSPCC stat, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was about um, calls to Childline. And on the face of it, it seems to be a worrying stat. So mm. uh, the stats from, I think it was the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, showed uh, six, uh, 60 children a day called Childline to report suicidal thoughts. Right. Uh, so these are young kids calling to say, I feel like self-harming or I feel suicidal, uh, which is obviously a worry. And if you stopped there, you would say it's a worrying stat. And it's a 15% rise, just like you said mm -hmm. on the previous year. I think for me, it's a, it's not just a worry. It has It could have good and bad parts to it. Okay. It's a worry that we have children who feel suicidal or feel like self-harming. Certainly, that's a worry. Yeah. Uh, and it's a worry for myself, you know, as a dad of young kids. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say behind that, it's very hard to say whether or not there's a genuine rise in mental health problems. Or I think more likely, we're just better at detecting them. Yeah. And we're better at noticing them. And we're more open at talking about them. And mental health services, though sometimes forgotten, are... Improving, it used to be called the Cinderella service, the last service you think of funding. But I think mental health services are gradually improving and 
um, reaching more into communities. So behind each of those 60 kids calling to report suicidal thoughts, there's, there might be a positive story of mm. 60 kids who are getting help for their suicidal thoughts. Yeah. 60 kids a day, which is a 15% rise in kids getting helped than the previous year. Mm. So I, again, you might think that's a bit of an optimistic way of looking at it, but I think that the, certainly some of those 60 kids per day would be children that are getting help that otherwise wouldn't be getting yeah. help. And then what would they be doing with their suicidal yeah. thoughts? Maybe they can't talk about it. Maybe it affects their schoolwork or their family life. Mm. Maybe they have to turn to alcohol and drugs to deal with thoughts. Maybe they have to self-harm or even worse, you know, develop thoughts of suicide to deal with their distress. Yeah. yeah. So I would say that it's not, it's not all bad. It's not a bad stat. It's a stat that has a mixed picture and it's hard to say whether or not mental health prevalence is rising or we're just being more open and we're talking about it yeah. more readily. And of course, the latter is a really good thing. Yeah, I guess on the face of it, it's quite negative, isn't it? But mm. there's always been, I guess they've all, well, it's a big, big thing to say, but there's always been that, um, those problems. There's always been those kind of thoughts you know, by children and, 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 and men and women. But there's, there's potential of, of transformation there as well. Absolutely. Um, which I think is outstanding. I think that's outstanding that, that there's, that there's more, more and more organisations that are addressing it too. Right. Mm. And you see it in schools. So my... Um, one of my kids is about to start secondary school. So we did a school visit to a local school, just a regular comprehensive school um, here in Yorkshire. Yeah. And um, they have sort of a whole mental health wing of this right. secondary school, like a whole counselling department. They're really interested in the kids as people. Sure, they're still interested in their SATs and their exam results and their GCSEs and Ofsted. They're so, sort of, I guess, performance managed. Yeah. But they care so much more about, about, it seems to me, they care more about kids than in my generation which wasn't so long ago but the the induction that they have some um my son's gonna have sort of five days of gradual induction to his local school there's nurses and counselors and support staff and, and so i think um i think the investment that's happening in young people's mental health is gradually you know coming on in schools i would say it's improving and then you take that school child and if they end up in a rugby league team they might have that then that expectation of support yeah. They've talked about mental health and feelings throughout the whole education. It's a bit more open in their community, their society, and they land at a rugby club and they they might be shocked by the lack of provision. It's an expectation. Because, there, yeah, then. it's not yeah. even as good as their secondary school. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah, that's um, improvement. Yeah. So that's a good, that's a kind of improvement, isn't it? And so then talking about this millennial generation or the younger generation, they might be arriving at football clubs or rugby clubs and saying, Where where's where's the support? It's not it's not even what they used to uh, locally, yeah, um, which I think will be a challenge, but also would be a good thing in terms of moving that on. Yeah, so there's um, Steve Hardesty, um, who's part of the Mentality Club. He he wanted to pose a question to you, and I think you've kind of answered that the um, with the organisations you've worked in and, and your understanding of, of of what they're doing. You think that's generally improving uh, across the board? You know, you've talked about secondary schools there and stuff, and, yeah. and the ones that you've worked at. Do you think? That is getting better, the inclination is getting better in, as a whole. So I would say as a whole, yeah, it's yeah. getting better. I'd say there's, there's pockets of good practice and there's pockets of poor practice. Mm -hmm. So it's not improving equally. Uh, Steve Hardesty, by the way, is a great guy. Huddersfield yeah. Giants, welfare yeah. officer, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, Steve's a really good guy. Brilliant fellow. Um, uh, so thanks for the question, Steve. I would say it's, it's improving across the board on average, definitely. And reducing stigma is a big part of that. Yeah. And I might be biased, but I would say in, in rugby league, I'd say groups like State of Mind and Mentality, Andy's Man Club, 
have mm. played a role in that. For sure. Uh, sure. Certain charitable groups. Um, but there are pockets of good and bad practice. And whilst I'm not going to name individual clubs or teams mm. or sports, I have the privilege of working across sports. There's 38 Olympic sports. And then in my clinic here in Leeds, I've been seeing, as I said, a rugby and then ballet and then football. And so yeah. a whole range of sports. I probably cover somewhere upwards of 50 sports. And you see different sports approach to mental health is different. Mm. It's, I would say, rugby and cricket are relatively advanced and other sports less so. And then within each sport, of course, different teams and different organizations are more or less advanced in their understanding and their um, passion, their wish to treat and understand and help and promote mental health. Yeah. Um, and again, so obviously not going to name individual clubs or, or people, but I think some clubs are more open than others. And I suppose that probably comes back to leadership, doesn't it? Because, you know, in each, um, in each, let's take a rugby team, um, the people who are the decision maker, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a, um, a pyramidal sort of structure, isn't it? There's a few people yeah. at the top. There's yeah. maybe the owner, the chairperson, the coach, mm-hmm. and they'll be making the majority of decisions. And so I think it depends at each club about who's there and who's showing leadership. Yeah, it's club. down to some certain individuals, isn't right. it? Right, it's in, probably in down to case. a handful of people. Yeah, whether or not that club is is treating its players as people, or is treating them as a way of getting a result on Saturday. I always, yeah, I always think about different sports, and um, there's, an, there's another fellow who's really interested in football. who's in Mentality Club as well, called Alex Robinson, and he, he um, really interested in, in in football. The you know the kind of the hurdles that footballers find or um, you know the the managers or the management type people like you, you spoke about there, the pressure that they're finding in short term kind of mm-hmm. turnarounds that they have. You know they've they've got to trust their ability for for results, um, and right. it's a tough, a really tough thing. And you, and you see the managers and 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 you can see it all the time that there's people being, you know, sacked or or, or kind of put under pressure for the jobs like. What do you find in football that's that's different to to other sports? Is there any, any differences you can find in that? Or? Yeah, I'd say some. Again, it varies between clubs and, of course, between people. Yeah. Um, but I was at a, a conference a couple of years back. I heard this really interesting theory. I don't think we spoke about it before. Uh, it's called the snowboarder theory about mental health. Right. And the uh, the feeling is that in um, in the um, UK snow sports, uh, snowboarders have particularly low levels of mental health problems. Again, it could be maybe they're not detected. But mm-hmm. the evidence seems to be from doctors working in, in UK snow sports, snowboarders have a lower levels of mental health problems, even compared to other snow sports like skiing or mm-hmm. compared to say a football academy. And there's, there's only theory, there's only theories about why that might be, but there's something about the snowboarding community kind of keeping it real. Right. So if you, if you compare a snowboarder to a premiership footballer, um, a snowboarder would be a relatively late developing sport. You could get into snowboarding in your teens or mm. you know, late teens, and you can still go to Winter Olympics and do well. Uh, you're likely to have remained maybe living in your community. You might need to have a base in Austria over the winter season, but yeah. you're likely to be living at home in your community. You're going to keep your interests in music, fashion, Nirvana, yeah. whatever <laughs> else it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you're probably um, integrated in your community. You're not separated from your yeah. community. And in that sense, you're kind of keeping it real compared to say a footballer who's probably selected out of their local mm. team at seven or younger. Yeah. They might be given 
lots of support or funding or the parents might be giving encouragement and the whole system um, sees this person as a future Premier League star, even though there's probably a one in a thousand chance of them making it. But the whole system, you could say, it kind of hothouses the person. It really directs them. Everything about them is mm. is, the, is is football. Whole identity is on the that. whole identity, yeah. the athletic identity. Like you said, yeah. it's all in that sport. It's all football. And I've worked with some uh, footballers locally here in Yorkshire who wanted to leave their uh, football. I worked with one um, academy player who wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to leave wow. football and become a DJ. But his whole family was so invested in the idea of him Never being a really footballer. Never really had a choice, did he? Right. The whole, and the whole system, even sort of unconsciously, was so invested in him being a footballer, their hopes and dreams, how much money he was going to earn as a footballer, how that was going to look after the family, that for him it was such a wrench. And for some people, they're not even aware of that themselves, but for him, he, he genuinely wanted to leave football. But the whole system, the whole systemic pressure on him was to stay in his sport. And I would say that's different. So football is an early maturing sport. They're selected early. Maybe it's a more homogenous, more kind of single mindset. Mm. Uh, they're keeping it real less. Yeah. There might be, you might be from London, but you've moved up to Manchester to be in a, a Manchester team. And so you might be separated from your community. Mm. So that's one approach. That's one, one thing to consider. The extent to which different sports mature at different rates and keep invested in local communities yeah. I would say rugby league does pretty well at that. Yeah. A lot of Leeds players are born and brought up in Leeds and mm. will have to have friends outside of rugby and the interests like you're, like you're doing here today, yeah. which is outside of rugby. The other thing you touched on there is about, I think about short-termism. Yeah. Is that yeah. what you're getting at? Yeah. yeah. So a bit about short-term views and um, I guess it's about insecurity of contracts or insecurity mm. of placement. And you probably see that more in football than in other sports. Yeah. Sure. I would imagine that's true. Yeah. Um, I had a really interesting speaker the other day talk about threat-based systems. Right. So it's talking about a system, it could be a business, or it could be a, a sports club, whereby a threat pervades that system. So from top to bottom, there's a, a pressure, a threat, people feel under pressure, mm. and how we all just naturally react as human beings when we're under pressure. So if as a, as a, a, a perhaps a football manager, you feel you've got three matches left and if you don't win these next three, you're out of the door. Mm. It's unlikely you're going to think long-term in terms of how is the football academy working and how do the parents of my young players feel and mm. what is the safeguarding policy? And you're probably not going to think long-term if you've got three weeks left to yeah. prove yourself. So yeah. I would say some sports more than others might have a higher feeling of threat and that might cause more short-termism. So they'd make... They take actions based on that. Right. Yeah. And we would all, and it's not that they're bad people. It's just a human. A human reaction, isn't it? Self-preservation, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And you might take, we could easily be nudged into making judgments, which are very short term. Mm. Um, whereas if you look at, let's say, taking football in the opposite example, you might look at the Manchester United team of the 90s and they had a manager there that was able to think long term and plan long term. The class of 92 yeah. fed the Champions League success of 99 and they were able to think and plan long term because you had leadership there that didn't feel threatened I suppose and that felt they could think long term and invest long term you could look at the Leeds Rhinos team of the late mm -hmm. 90s early 90s in the same way Yeah, but yeah I'd say the more threat that a system feels particularly when its leaders feel threatened mm -hmm. the greater the risk is of judgments based on short termism yeah, um, I find that really interesting. I find that the snowboarding 
theory. Mm. Like, really interesting. What do you think? What do you think about that? How, how do you relate I, I to can, that? I or? can see it because they've, they've had a lot, a lot more time to um, explore, explore their own interests without being put in that system or that kind of that zone, which is 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 um, inevitable for what they're going to be like. And it's do or die as well. And and there's another thing to touch on with football academies, but I think it's quite well known that sometimes a lot of the teams are formed in in the academy days where the they're picked because of one kid that's that's going to be the best, but they have to pick a team of 20, 25 kids mm. to to implement a team or a process for that kid to go on and, and, and make it. Um, and I mean, that might be an extreme example, but I just, I just think that that snowboarding example, it does give more time and more um, kind of, areas for, for them to be able to explore their own interests rather than just right. being put into something which I think is really important and like you mentioned rugby league we um, me being a Leeds lad it's very accessible for me to to do that and um, I've had mates that have grown up from school that I still knock around with now and, and still go out and see different types of music um, and and obviously mentality you know I've, I've, I've got so many mates that can help out with this at different times mm. And, and I think I've been allowed to do that and, and I've probably pushed myself to do that as well at a certain point. Um, and I do think you might have to comment on, on that, but how important do you think it is to have external interest as well as, yeah. as just just something that, that you, you totally focused on and that leads into, for me, which which is a big one as well. And, and I know a lot of sports people are listening to it might be a little bit of a perfectionist as well. Mm. Um, I know that I was a perfectionist as a, as a young kid playing. Um, if I didn't score three tries and if I missed one tackle, I might be in car on way home and this is about 10 years old with my head down like in a mood. And my mum and dad would be like, you scored three tries or, you know, you, you played really well. I'm like, I'm well enough. And, and it's kind of that, that, that search for perfection, which on one side of it is good because you're going to drive yourself to play well and keep playing well but on the, also on the other side it causes a lot of external pressure stresses and um, stuff that I guess that is residual that you don't need mm-hmm. so I, yeah I agree with both of us but I think there's two points there the first is I guess around um, players sports people or maybe all of us having a plan B having outside interests mm-hmm. so people like Steve Hardesty or the Giants who will be working with players of all ages or stages and developing their yeah. plan B it might be about their financial literacy, their understanding of investments and, and saving for the future. There's a stat from the NFL from American football that 75% of American footballers, guys that are paid millions of dollars have gone bankrupt at least once within five years of retirement. Yeah, heard that. So there's something about, um, yeah, you can be rich, but it doesn't mean you'll be rich for very long if you're not financially literate. So it might be yeah. about developing um, other skills outside of kicking and passing mm-hmm. and uh, breaking tackles. Uh, also thinking about different careers or different interests, whether it's yourself with mentality. I always think, I, I, yeah, I would say I would always think that's a good thing. Mm. So there's, I think there's a mistake. Uh, I think there's a, there's a, a mindset among some that if a player has a plan B, they're not focusing so much on plan A. Yeah. So if they have an outside interest, they're not focusing so much on training or playing or running mm. or kicking or tackling. And I think, I think that's unlikely because most players I come across, or most people I come across in all sports, uh, across all sports, are so dedicated mm. uh, to their profession and work so hard 
and are so interested in their performance and anything that I do that could improve or detract from their performance, they're right onto it. And their, their performance is almost the most important thing. Yeah. But to have outside interests, to have that balance, I think to have a plan B, a good plan B, means you can focus extra hard on plan yeah. A because plan B is almost in the bank. Yeah, you're like assured to be assured able to of do that. It. Yeah. If you've got an extra trade, an extra interest, extra connections for when you're 35 plus as a rugby league player, then you can really focus on your sport in your 20s, knowing you've got other interests. So aside from the well-being benefits of having diverse interests, having other things to occupy you, particularly during periods of injury, Particularly yeah. during periods of injury, yeah, yeah. by your you you were able to say much more about this, mm. where by your maybe detached from the group or you're not connected in the same way you would be classically in a rugby team, you'd be in the rehab group rather than the training yeah. group. To have other interests, to have other sources of support, other foundations for your self esteem, I think is so important. Mm. So I think yeah, I would always encourage people and the welfare officers would do that in each in each club to consider a plan B. And to just be gradually working away at that in the background, which means you can focus extra hard on plan A. Yeah. That'd be my thoughts about it. Cool. Perfectionism was the next thing you covered. Yeah. That's a big one to call, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. How, how long have I got? <laughs> yeah. So, um, how many sides do you want to look at there? So I guess the first thing is what is perfectionism? Mm-hmm. So from, from my definition, so perfectionism is where the person has inappropriately high standards. There's nothing wrong with high standards, nothing wrong, wrong with very high standards. But if your standards are set so high that you can never attain them, then that's unhelpful. Okay. So if you uh, want to um, be a great tackler, if you want to be the best tackler in the team or the most tackles, that's a good standard. Mm. But if you say, I never, ever want to miss a tackle, that's probably not going to happen yeah. over the course of a season. So that would be an example of an inappropriately high standards. Perfection is where an inappropriately high standard is matched with a real harsh self-criticism. Because we can probably live with having inappropriately high standards as long as we're not really hard on ourselves when we don't reach those. Mm. So perfectionism is where the person's setting these inappropriately high standards, but then they're really harsh on themselves, really critical, really hard on themselves when they don't reach that. And and that together is perfectionism. And of course, it can be detrimental for self-esteem and self-confidence. Uh, it could make the person feel threatened and then they might be in that threat-based system within their shell. Yeah. They might stop speaking out or taking risks or venturing an opinion. Um, and of course that could affect performance as they sort of um, go for the lowest uh, risk option, the path of least resistance. Yeah. So yeah, perfectionism. And it's not just in sports, of course, many doctors, I would say myself included, can be perfectionistic. Yeah, can be perfectionists. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well as having an athletic identity, you can have sort of a, doctor identity yeah um, you need to get everything right all the time right everything yeah. right and of course it very often is life and death yeah. if, if you're a doctor yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, you could easily or you could be a banker and it's big sums of money or you could be a mother or a father and it's your children's well-being in any way you could be a perfectionist um, I guess the antidote to perfectionism first thing would be to sort of recognise that in yourself and be aware of it and how yeah. it affects you there's another sort of therapeutic approach called compassion focused therapy. Yeah. And that's all about sort of being accepting and kind and compassionate with oneself. So maybe you still set very high standards, but if you don't meet them, you work on that and you uh, sort of reset that. There's some models that I've developed that I use with players, which might be about working out what aspects of that problem are in the person's control. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a problem, a uh, 
contractual problem, uh, injury problem, uh, relationship problem. There were some things you can control and there were some things you can't. And we asked people to focus on controlling their controllables. Yeah. But before that, I think, and maybe even more important than that would be acceptance, would mm. be uh, allowing yourself to make mistakes, allowing yourself to cock up sometimes, to see that you don't have to be perfect all of the time, mm. allowing yourself to fail and lend learning from failure and bouncing back. Yeah. So also touching on things around resilience there, I guess. And then kind of, you, you know what you can control. And so it's almost like forming a plan then, isn't it, to, for what you can act on after right. that? Absolutely. Yeah. So once you've, so when, I guess once you've accepted that you don't have to be perfect and you've accepted your feelings and you're not beating yourself up for your feelings, then yeah, the next stage, I guess, working out what you can control. Um, let's say in a difficult relationship problem, for example, there might be aspects of that that you can't control. The other person's thoughts or feelings are outside of your control. Mm. Your own behavior, your own values, the way you conduct yourself is within your control. It's natural to still think about the things you can't control, to still worry about how does that person feel about me, for example. Yeah. That's normal, it's natural, it's to be expected. Yeah. But no matter how much you worry about what other people think of you, it probably won't change it. Mm. You can spend your whole day worrying about what people think of you and it probably won't make one bit of difference. Mm. So if you can focus on controlling the controllables, how you live your life, how you apply that to your values, how you treat people around you, and you focus on that, it's almost like a to-do list, isn't it? Yeah. Of, a, of a controlling the controllables, what things are under my control. That's a lot easier than worrying about the things that are outside of your control. So does the act of that, like, so I, I want to ask you just to, if you can run through an example and how people can break it down if they're going to physically do it themselves. Yeah, okay. Does the act of that um, actually put people at ease, you know, doing that process, does that put people at ease so they can kind of process it in their minds? And, and is, is this some sort of I don't know, science behind that? Or, or Yeah. So so this model, so if we put the two things together, accept and controller controllables, the model uh, puts together two forms of therapies that are evidence-based. The first half would be compassion-focused therapy, so being self-compassionate and accepting and understanding of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's a therapy that's used in the NHS and is evidence-based. Right. The second, which is probably our most evidence-based therapy, controller controllables, I think is a very CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy type of approach, yep. a practical approach. We put the two together. So let's take um, a relationship problem between a couple. Um, the, uh, the might, a person might have uh, frustrations, anger, perhaps that it's the end of a relationship. Mm. Um, and they might feel frustrated and confused and angry and mixed up about that. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to get those feelings out and you yeah. might get them out by talking to a friend, someone who you trust. But in this exercise, you would maybe write out your feelings, write out that mix of feelings that you have and then ask yourself, is it reasonable, is it acceptable to feel like this? Right, okay. So you kind of write out all your frustrations, all your anger, all your worries and then ask yourself, does that seem reasonable? Would, it, would my friend feel like this in the same situation? Have I felt like this before in a similar situation? Is it completely bizarre or more likely it's probably reasonable, the feelings that you have. Yeah. And that acceptance, and that compassion is really important to allow yourself to feel mm. stuff before you move on to the next stage, which would be then working out of that relationship problem, say the a breakup, what can you control and not control? So you can't really control if someone else wants to be with you, if someone else loves you, if someone else thinks you're great or they think you're not great. Um, 
but it's normal to worry about that still. It's yeah. reasonable to, to have a concern for how people feel about us, uh, but there's really nothing you can do about it. And so this next bit, uh, uh, controller controllables, acts as a reminder, really, to ask yourself if you're, if you're worried about something, is that in your control or is it not? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you can make a checklist of things that are under your control, how you conduct yourself, how you live your life, uh, how you live your values, whether you still leave the house and get up and try your best, how you relate to those closely around you, your family, your kids. And that becomes kind of a checklist for life, if you like, controlling what you can control. Yeah. Whilst you still might think about uncontrollables, you just remind yourself that that's not in your gift and there's very little you can do about it. Yeah. So that's the model. Did that... Yeah, that, Makes sense. that definitely helped, yeah. And I think that's going to be a clear-cut thing for listeners to, to be able to do themselves. And um, this is this is really great information, mate. That, that, so I thank you for running through that. The the, um, the first part of that is a compassion-based therapy. Mm. Um, I was just thinking when you're going through that, do you think there will be a point when that's almost not needed to be in there. Do you know, like we're talking about the stigma and we're talking about the mm-hmm. idea that people are becoming more open and stuff. There is a resistance in there to, to feel that or to allow yourself to feel that. Um, do you think that'll become more natural as time goes on? Yeah, good question. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so you would think that if society were becoming more open, kinder, more compassionate, that that might happen. Mm. I guess I think that's happening, but it's happening slowly and only on average. Yeah. So there are people that we might bump into, a minority of people, but still people who are not kind, who are not compassionate, yeah. who don't have our best interests at heart. So I would say there's still the risk of us bumping into people who, in society who don't treat us well, who are judgmental or who are prejudiced against us for whatever reason. But more than that, I suppose there's also, um, we live in our own brains, don't we? So mm-hmm. we live with ourselves and often our harshest critic is ourselves. Ourself, yeah. And so um, even if society would become this perfect utopia where everyone's kind to each other, it's perfectly possible that a lot of us through perfectionism, whatever else is, would still be critical of ourselves. Yeah. And maybe you can relate to that as a, as a rugby player. You're, the thing that's driving you, the thing that's your harshest critic, your motivation, there'll be some external things, maybe important things like family, but a lot of it will come from yourself, won't it? Yeah. And yeah. So, and I think, yeah, like, so the, the view on society will come from yourself. So I'm wondering if, I don't think it would happen. I think there's always going to be resistance to, well, we can talk about vulnerability in a minute, actually. Um, being able to be vulnerable to, and I guess that's in, in the same or in a different shade as being compassionate to yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if someone is, is, is doing these practices all the time, is doing that practice, writing them down and stuff, is that going to become more natural in their day-to-day life, do you know, like, because yeah. they've done it like a muscle, say for instance, right? they've allowed themselves to feel like that. And then the kind of more, um, the muscle memory is more to do what they control and, and not worry so much about what they can't control. Yeah. Is that like a muscle that they can build and, and kind of carry on doing it as they grow up? And, you know, you talk about this utopia, um, for people being more able to do it. Okay, so I would say a definite yes to that. Yeah. So I think about this like coaching. And if you compare it to a sport, you're constantly coached how to kick and pass and throw and run. And I think we can coach our sort of mental strengths. Yeah. And that's a huge part of my job. So my job I see is far more than just treating illness, although that's also important. You know, mm-hmm. treating mental illness is a big part of my job. 
but promoting health is also a big part yeah. of my job. Um, so I think we're now touching on things around resilience, like building mental strengths. Mm. And for me, I, I draw on a concept called prehabilitation, which you'll be familiar with in sport. Yeah. It's particularly, it's, prehabilitation is a big issue in dance. So a ballet dancer needs to strengthen their yeah. foot and butt, bone and ankle muscles and ligaments in advance of the next stress. Cause something like ballet is, you know, uh, has a real impact yeah. on, uh, on bone health and foot health and everything else. So prehabilitation, or you might see it in rugby is strengthening a muscle, strengthening a, a, a joint in advance of an injury. Mm-hmm. And I think about what I do in exactly the same way. So if you like, I'm strengthening the mind muscle in advance of the next mental health injury yeah. or mental health challenge. Yeah. yeah. And so very much so. So, um, so I, I do a lot of resilience exercises with people. I draw on the work of two uh, Loughborough-based psychologists mm-hmm. called Fletcher and Sarkar, and they've done a number of papers based in sport. The 2012 paper, which looked at uh, Olympic champions and looked at what, uh, what made them succeed. And almost to a person, I would say to a man, but it was men and women, they, they bounced back from difficulties. Mm-hmm. So no one's career has ever gone straight up to the stars and then just, it's all been perfect. Every one of those people they sampled and probably every one of us has had ups and downs. Mm-hmm. And they, they looked at really uh, how does, how does someone turn the corner when they've had a down and they've run a down tick? How and when did they turn the corner? And they used something called thematic analysis or factor analysis to look at the interviews they had with these people. And they boiled resilience down to five things, uh, positivity, motivation, focus, self-confidence, and something called perceived social support. And I thought that these are the factors of being positive, being optimistic, being motivated, wanting to be where you are, having energy, being focused, being able to focus on your goals, being self-confident, feeling that you can achieve things, and perceived social support, believing that people have your back and you're supported and being grateful for your support. I thought that these things help people to bounce back from difficulties and so, yeah, I would, based on what you said, I would say, yeah, very much so we can build people's mind and muscle by improving their resilience because the next challenge is only just around the corner. Mm. And when that comes, we want to be as strong as we can be to meet that challenge. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot in that. And um, I mean, from from my own challenges, I know that, you know, I'm talking to you now, Alan, um, with a halfway through a four-month knee injury. Mm. Um, and that's frustrating to say the least. Been quite good up to... Um, a point about a week and a half ago where I really deflated and um, frustrated with it but I do feel like I'm a lot more adept at feeling it and allowing it but then also to um, find a way to work through it um, and to look for look for reasons for why you know, I might be feeling deflated or a bit flat mm. um, and that's why I guess I want to, to share with listeners on mentality Um you know, different, these conversations. And I think this is an, an amazing conversation for people because a lot of it's centered around sport, but that accept and control of controllables will definitely help people and, and really, really help people. So I appreciate that. Um, I guess that does relate to, to vulnerability. Do you, do you, I've got my own anecdote on vulnerability hmm. um, from 2017 preseason. Um, and this is, you know, kind of something that we did. We, we went up to North Yorkshire. We spent two, two nights up up there and it was just like a team building thing really we did we did biking around the moors and um you know different daft stuff um but one of the things that that we did was eight eight of the lads got up and spoke um to the team and dressed the team 
and it was Brian McDermott at the time um, he just said get up and speak for 20 minutes so there's a few nervous lads in there mm. and it's quite a daunting thing to stand up you know it's mm. alright speaking to 50 strangers but to speaking to teammates and you know putting everything out there you know it's pretty tough but five of the eight lads um, spoke about mental troubles mental struggles or mental hurdles that they had to come across and and get over um, before that 2017 season and for me that was a really really big um, factor for why we were able to do what we did in, at the end of 2017 and mm. it kind of puts into this or throws into this um, you know group desire or collective desire that everyone has to to kind of go through tests and go through the, the tough times as a team um, and I think that's you know what champion teams are made of and very hard to kind of put them together willy nilly but mm. um, you know I think that were a really big big thing and I, and I guess a lot of vulnerability was shown at that time and, and in that those few days I'm wondering if you could comment on, on what you think about vulnerability and you know not just as a sportsman but also as as someone um, who might look to do that except and control the controllables and sure I mean for, I, I, I try to answer as best as I can but it sounds like you've got a lot of knowledge yourself what what do you think it was about people showing vulnerability was it something about that that bonded you to those people or made you care about those people or understand them more what do you think, think it was yeah I think definitely understand them and the mm. fact that they were able to show the not so great side of themselves um, you know threw into this melting pot that that you'd have each other's back and, and you can understand them more and, and mm. almost work for them more and fight for them more um, that's where my that's where my subjective lens on it. Mm, um, that's really interesting. I can I can think of a number of things that come out of that. So I think there's something about having uh, showing vulnerability and having the capacity to, show, to I guess to show humility mm-hmm. and to show that you, we're not that say like, I'm not perfect and that I make mistakes and that I've been down and uh, and to show that I think builds bonds and builds communication and builds yeah. understanding. I think there's something in that. I was down at Saracens rugby union team last week looking at something called the Saracens way, which was really interesting. I thought it was really interesting. And humility is one of their four key principles and showing humility. And you can relate that to all blacks and other teams Mm. that that, are big on humility. Um, There's something about, as you were talking there, I thought about something called, it's called the in-group out-group phenomenon. Right. So that's about us and them. So if you ever watch Big Brother or I'm a Celebrity, get me out of here, there's always two teams, isn't there? There's the blue team and the yellow mm-hmm. team or the housemates and there's somebody yeah. else. And so psychologists who work in those shows, I imagine, are creating this us and them. So in-group, out-group phenomena is where you feel different to someone else and you start speaking about we're like this and they're like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe is behind a lot of things like, like racism, for example. Yeah. They look different to me and I'm I, we're like this and they're mm-hmm. like that. And the truth is we're all human beings. So I wonder if um, when when you, you and your teammates got up and spoke about mental health difficulties, where, where you shared those and some of you had things in common and you could relate to one another, you'd all been through uh, challenges or mental challenges over mental health problems, whether that, that reduces the us and themness of it, becomes us and us, yeah. all of us, or yeah. we're all in this together. Yeah. There's a sense that you're all, it's not these people over here that have those problems and I'm all right, Jack. Mm. It's we've all had these problems and we're all going to have to find the solutions together. Yeah. So I would, maybe it breaks down the us and themness about it. Yeah. The in-group, out-group phenomenon is called. So you feel all part of a group 
And then the only other thought I had was just about how positive it must be to, sh- to and liberating maybe to share those stories with each other and also to share the solutions. So not just the difficulties that you had, but uh, the positive parts of the journey. So yeah. the times when you were down, but how you picked yourself back up, the challenge you had, but how you overcome that hurdle. There's a lot of learning that you can have in a group. I guess a team is a group of individuals who have different skills, but when they get together, they complement each other and they're more than the sum of their parts. So there might be something about that, that's sharing the, pos- the, the solutions together, as well as sharing the vulnerability, but sharing the way they dug the sums out of the hole. Yeah. That might, there might be something in that that you can all learn from one another and feel as if you're on the same mission together. Yeah. And you, you mentioned solutions there. Um, I'm just wondering for, for people listening, um, if they're incurring a mental trouble or, you know, a mental health problem or, and it's, it's hard for you to say because I know that in your job, you've got to get to know the individuals and some people, but in terms of self-support, you know, what, what could you recommend and, and, and what could you advise, advise for someone listening? Sure. Okay. So that's important, isn't it? Because the, as we know, one in four of us will have a mental health problem mm-hmm. of our lifetime. So a, a quarter of your listenership at least will have yeah. uh, those difficulties. And in particular, it can affect, affect men. And we know that men are overrepresented in statistics like suicide statistics, yeah. but we don't always seek help in, in the same way or even in appropriate ways. I think that's a really good question. Um, so I guess support is systematic. There's lots of different parts to it, but it just start with self, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So it starts with some basic things about self, keeping a routine, eating, uh, drinking, sleeping, avoiding things that are unhelpful, too much alcohol, drugs, caffeine, um, issues around self-esteem, uh, f- finding something positive to see in yourself, seeing progress, no matter what your role is or what you're doing, you can do that to the best of your ability and you can see chart progress and measure yeah. progress with it as your kids get older or as you develop new skills or new learning. So that'd be like a, a measuring progress type of thing yeah, to do. So it in could a be keeping a diary. Or, yeah. Could be keeping a diary. <coughs> but we do that with players who are, uh, who are in the rehab group, rehabilitating from an injury. If you had an ACL, you're out for nine months. That's a heck of a long mm. time. And it's going to start with the injury and then the surgery and then your recovery. Mm. And there's a structure for an ACL, isn't there? So you go yeah. through, maybe um, loading the tendon and straight line speed and uh, a multi-directional speed uh, and movements. So you could, you could really chart and reflect, I guess we're talking about mindfulness. Yeah. So being mindful of where you are and your progress and how far you've come. Mm. So I think that's important. Self-esteem is such an important concept that often we come back to for myself or for people that I see. Mm. Support sometimes does involve getting help from other people. So it might involve talking to trusted people. So I call it the circle of trust. There's a small number of people in your life that, that you really trust and that you really invest and you can really say anything to. And it might be about talking to trusted people, opening up. Most athletes, most people who talk about mental health problems would say that talking was a, a big solution. Yeah. You know, letting out your feelings, sharing it with someone who, who you trust and care for. So talking is important. There are other informal support networks, family, friends, community, charities, Mm. Uh, charitable sector things like Andy's Man Club which I yeah. mentioned already but doing great yeah. work with yeah. men uh, all over the country now and then of course the more formal supports your GP is what they call the gatekeeper to mental health services so they can refer you to mm. counselling something called IAPT or into mental health services mental health services are themselves complex and have different layers but your question was about self-support and that's a good place to start mm. so yeah 
it'd be, there'd be definite issues around the basics of self-care, sleeping, eating, diet, mm-hmm. routine, connectedness, issues around self-esteem, issues around doing something that you're good at, finding something you're good at, mm-hmm. doing that and enjoying that, yeah. seeing progress. So I think a lot of care, as you said, starts with self. Yeah. And um, I know you do a lot, a lot of work around values and stuff. Would you recommend that for anyone to look at, to mm-hmm. kind of to look at discovering? And mm-hmm. is there any processes that you'd, you'd recommend for that, for, for people to be able to link their behaviours to them and, and to kind of act upon them? Right. Very much so. So yeah, most of the tools that I use or develop, I sort of, I guess I develop them um, and kind of trial them on myself, I guess. I'd yeah. think about how I'd apply to that. I've thought about what are my values. Uh, so there's a concept called why start with why, which is start a good place to start with. There's a website, start with is that Simon, Simon Sinek? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Snap. <laughs> yeah, uh, who's, uh, who's, uh, I developed this concept like largely for business and commerce in the States, but a good concept we can apply to us all. Mm-hmm. And the concept in a nutshell is we often think about what we do or how we do it or when it has to be done, yeah. but we don't often start with why, why am I doing mm-hmm. this? So it would be, why am I a doctor or a rugby player? Mm-hmm. Why did I start on this journey and why am I still here? Um, what do I uniquely, the phrase is, what do I uniquely bring to this system? So for you, it's Leeds Rhinos or for me, it's yeah. sports psychiatry. But part of my genetics, my environment and my upbringing, what am I bringing to the party? Yeah. And so doing this exercise, start with why it can be a good place to start to work on your values and developing what are re- what's really important to you, what's really driving you. And a person might come up with a list of three or four values It'd be unique to them, but for example, it might be honesty, family, hard work. Mm-hmm. And then you take those three values and just make sure honesty, family, hard work, that your behaviors align with those values. Yeah. So if you believe in honesty, but you're having to lie to your partner, that's dissonant. Yeah. And you're not going to feel complete or consonant until you're living your values. Mm. If you believe in family, but you're working all the hours that God sends and not seeing your kids, that's going to be dissonant. So there's something about, yeah, developing a sense of your values and then trying to link your behaviours to your values so that you're walking the talk, that you're living the life that you want to lead. And yeah. that's easier said than done. I'm not trying to suggest I yeah, have all yeah. the answers. Just we all have pressures on us, financial pressures, etc. cetera. Uh, but yeah, starting with why, starting with why you're doing what you're doing and what are your values is, is, is a good place to start. Yeah, I can think back to um, when I was 19, mate, and... Um, the, I guess the depression I had, um, playing in the team at Leeds, but I want firing, I want firing all cylinders and I want playing to the perception I knew I could play and want able to, to have my physical, um, peak really that, that, that I would have in later years. Um, and I can, I can definitely put down on a reason for why I'm feeling like is because I wasn't behaving to my values. You know, the, the kind of, the, the performing off the field uh, as I'd, I'd done all my life had kind of been taken away. So I was left with actions that, that weren't in alignment with what I've done all my whole life. So that kind of looking back in hindsight has, has kind of made a lot of sense. So I hope that an 18, 19 year old can listen to this and, and kind of understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, it may take some time for the penalty to drop because 18 and 19 year olds are interested in different things and, and that's just that's just part of life. Um, I do know that now that, that the playbook, you know, of of that of the values and and being being able to 
to act like that when I can't get on the field is does help and keeps me in sync and I've banged on about that so many times that's why I've asked you about it I've spoke about it for on about four of these podcasts mm. um, recently because it's a big it's a, it's a prevalent thing in my life especially now um, with the injury so listeners may be a bit, a bit bored of it but I'll keep banging the drum um, and people may be able to send me some information on them Um sussing out their why or sussing out their values but yeah. it's definitely easier to, to navigate when when you've got that background knowledge and background right. information the only thing I'd add in because I, th- I believe in everything you said the only thing I'd add in is that it's not possible to live our values 100% of the time Yeah. so coming back to say a perfectionist trying to live their values would set impossibly high standards mm. let's say family I believe in family it's one of my values but I work hard and I have lots of different jobs so if, if I'm too perfectionistic I might be critical of myself for working, I'm doing my jobs yeah. because I'm not seeing my family enough. And so there's a balance. There needs to be a bit of tolerance. If you're too perfectionistic, sure, that's it's still life, good to work. It? Yeah. You've yeah. got to work out your values. But you've got to have enough flexibility to mm. know, let's say family at times you're going to have to put in the graft and the work, and then you're going to enjoy a nice uh, holiday together as a family. A holiday from your values. Right. <laughs> not a holiday from your values. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you go on holiday to live your values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, uh, yeah, there's a balance before. And I just say that it's certainly please work out your values, work out the behaviours that align with that, but give yourself some tolerance, some acceptance, some compassion mm. that you're not going to live your values. Your values are an aspiration. Yeah. It's not going to be what you live 100% of the it's not time. It's like the solid, solid thing that is always going to happen. Right. It's yeah. like a, it's, it's a point of navigation. It sets you on the right course, your values, mm. but you're not going to end up at exactly the same destination each yeah. time. You're going to need some flexibility and to allow yourself to make mistakes sometimes. And then yeah. your values will help you return back to being on course. Yeah, I definitely think that is, it's a good way to put it. The navigation, like when I was 19, I didn't have that nav- navigation. Mm, you lost um, your sat-nav. Yeah, definitely lost your <laughs> sat-nav at some point. Um, but I, I do think that, that you know, you can, you can kind of go into all the differences in, in mental health, um, you know, whether they blend into mental health problems. But I do think that that is something really to to think about as, as, a, as a young man um, nowadays, especially. Um, to tick off and to kind of understand. Um, I think we may be out of time, Alan, but I think that does lead us into a, a good five-parter. Um, we can do yeah. five parts. Well, there you have it. That is where our audio recorder decided to throw a hissy fit. We didn't have Dominic, young Dominic Smith there, the uh, sound whiz kid there to um, make sure everything ran smoothly up until everything was done. The uh, audio recorder ran out because... I had 10,000 things to do at once. So I can guarantee that everything was working finely for the next episode. That's with Daryl O'Connor. He's a psychologist based at Leeds University. He's an expert in stress and research in stress too. So it's quite an interesting podcast. That is, um, if anyone's interested in stress and mental health, give that a listen. And if you liked this one today, please do share it. Please let me know what you thought about it and if it helped you. And also... If you give us a rating or give us some feedback on on the iTunes, if you're listening on that or whatever platform, we would be extremely, extremely grateful for that. Okay, guys, take care. All the best.